This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, December 8th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Mountain Village approves layout for VCA expansion, East End Master Plan focus group findings, smart looks to 2023 and beyond, and a mountain weather forecast. A floor plan for Mountain Village's Village Court apartment expansion is officially on the books. On Thursday, Mountain Village approved the layout for two new apartment buildings. One building, Building E, will be a mix of one- and two-bedroom apartments. The other, Building W, will be four-bedroom, more dorm-style suite units. In total, the expansion will add 38 more units and 88 new bedrooms. Triumph Development, which is developing the expansion, provided town council with the option to make both buildings a mix of one- and two-bedroom units, but they note that would drop the bed count. Triumph's Mike Foster notes eliminating things like kitchens in the dorm-style building allows them to create more bedrooms. Since we have less front doors, we have less kitchens, we have less living spaces, we turn that space then into bedroom space. So that's how we actually got more bedrooms in basically the same footprint. Mountain Village Town Manager Paul Weiser adds having a mix of unit types is beneficial to the needs of the community and region. We serve a very broad population. I understand. Um, And so I think that's partly why we're suggesting doing one building as the (laughs) E building and one building as the W building because the E building still can serve um, people who are probably more committed to staying in the area longer, whereas the W building probably serves businesses uh, and who have employees who are here for a season and then will leave. And those businesses are then left to struggle to find new housing for their new employees. So I think by doing both buildings, we are able to more better serve the broader community. Town Council was largely in support of the two-floor plans. Mountain Village Mayor Leila Benitez adds the town could also potentially partner with businesses to use the four-bedroom units to house their employees. I am in favor of master leasing when we get to that point in the conversation directly to businesses. Um, I think that we're probably looking at businesses who otherwise could not build their own. And so the town cannot build all the housing that the ski resort needs but we can definitely do what we can to build and master lease to the smaller businesses and hotels in our communities. During public comment, all members who spoke were in support of building as many bedrooms as possible. Brian Woody from the Madeline Hotel also supports a master leasing agreement. I just want to voice my support for this project. I think it's a fantastic initiative. Uh, I would encourage town council to consider maximizing the number of bedrooms. Madeline employees, 140 employees, and even at the 88 bedroom count here, that would not be enough to satisfy the needs of a single business. I think there's some really exciting um, projects and hotel projects coming through uh, the DRB presently, and I think uh, I would just encourage town council to consider doing more um, as we're going to need more beds for more employees, and I think this is a great start and fully support it. And. Uh, Further, I'd like to uh, add that I would fully support uh, the ability to uh, come up with some master lease agreement with the local businesses so that we have some control of housing for our workforce. At the end of discussion, Town Council approved the Building E and W configuration to build an additional 88 bedrooms at BCA. 
Councilmember Harvey Mogensen was the lone member to vote against, noting his worry for the town to manage that many residents. I don't think we're, I don't think we're equipped to run the turnover and the, and the dormitory style that would come with the, with the mini dormitories. So my suggestion for the council would be going with the W configuration, I would like, I don't think we're equipped to run it the way we are, <clears throat> the way we're currently staffed from a management point of view for the current VCA. With approval of the layouts, Triumph Development can continue with its development process. The company plans to begin site work in May 2023 with completion of the project in January 2024. San Miguel County is working to create a new development roadmap for the east end of the county with an east end master plan. The current master plan for the area was adopted in 1989, and it's due for an update. Over the past several weeks, the county held a number of focus groups with key leaders and stakeholders in the community. The focus groups looked at tourism, recreation and visitors, housing, environmental stewardship, mobility and transportation, and equity inclusion and livability. The county is working with consulting firm Design Workshop to facilitate the master plan process. This week, the company met with the county's advisory group, comprised of a collection of community members, to share some of the key findings from the focus groups. The overarching theme from all the groups is that the natural landscape and strong community make San Miguel County a great place to live. Um, walkable communities, small town atmosphere, all of the music and arts and access to outdoor recreation and work-life balance. That's Callie New, project manager with Design Workshop. According to the focus group, New says when it comes to where development should go, they support it in and around existing towns and in existing subdivisions within the county. Areas identified as least appropriate for growth include the Deep Creek Mesa area, Ofer, and Alta. Challenges when it comes to tourism and recreation, new notes, has to do with tension between locals and visitors. The impacts to housing affordability and sort of the community identity, um, there's feelings that, that that's being threatened. New says, especially when it comes to housing. Housing availability from the short-term rentals and that um, kind of squeezing out locals who are looking for long-term rent renter, uh, rentals. Um, second home ownership impacts and the large amount of vacant um, housing and then housing needed for employment and long commute times. Um, transportation to the region was an issue that was identified. With housing well discussed, even before getting to the housing focus group, New says they heard about challenges when it comes to affordability, developable land, infrastructure and water capacity and zoning. Those experiencing barriers to entry, um, are the Latinx community, service industry workers, low income, as well as middle income residents who might not qualify for affordable housing, um, but can't afford the, the market rate housing. Um, the older adult population, seasonal workers and public service workers, um, and then displacement of employees to areas down valley and how that's impacting transportation and the environment. But new ads, the focus group also expressed opportunities to explore when it comes to housing. A number of different development types, including um, cluster style housing, uh, tiny homes, long term camping, dormitory style housing um, that could be for employees or short term visitors that kind of flexes to within seasons, looking at taxation on vacant homes and then a number of regulatory tools that you can see listed on the screen, um, including restricting the number of short term rentals within the community. 
The Environmental Stewardship Group highlighted water scarcity, wildfire, habitat loss, land use conflicts, and light pollution as challenges. Some opportunities um, were regional multi-jurisdictional decision-making, the idea of a land trust, um, and the regulatory tools like uh, drought standards, energy-efficient and climate-friendly building codes, weatherization standards to be more um, efficient with energy a large-scale green waste collection, and then preservation of, of course, the things that make uh, San Miguel County very unique, including Indigenous culture and preserving rural character. The Mobility and Transit Group shared challenges to transit service. Like uh, limited service hours and then not serving certain service hour areas that people need. Um, The sort of unknown future of the gondola responsibility commuting trends, access to regional transportation again, and then um, lack of safe bike and pedestrian infrastructure, including safe crossings. That that was a topic that came out pretty often. The group said electric vehicles, more walkability, parking, and enhancing transit services as possible opportunities. And then finally, in the equity inclusion and livability group, some of the challenges and issues identified. Um, also, you know, all of the housing issues that were captured in other groups um, were cultural and language barriers, um, ADA access, events and programming um, for aging populations, and um, of course, housing affordability. And then some of the opportunities to explore um, are trainings related to um, equity, diversity, and inclusion, more outreach to Native tribes and immigrant populations to include them, Um, a lot of the things that we've been talking about today. The county is currently looking to the community to get feedback from the general public and hear ideas and opinions individuals have when it comes to regional development. To share comment and see full master plan documents, go to sanmiguelcountyco.gov slash eastendmasterplan. The San Miguel Authority for Regional Transportation is joining the ranks of public entities, passing its budget for 2023. KOTO News spoke with Smart Executive Director David Averill about the year ahead and the year in the rearview mirror for the transit body. The conversation started by focusing on some of the highlights from 2022. The nuts and bolts of stuff, like revenue is pretty good. Even with inflation, spending didn't get out of control, so that always makes us happy. Um... We're pretty psyched to pull off a couple of service expansions, um, namely some of the extra service that we're doing in Norwood. And then also uh, the new service between Lawson Hill and Mountain Village is rolling. Uh, we've got a few customers on there already, and that's good out of the gate. Um, we'd always love to see more, but we think that'll build for over time. So I think on the whole, it was a pretty good year. Um, no big missteps or flubs or anything like that. So pretty happy. <laughs> yeah. And then looking forward, Smart, just you passed your budget for 2023 mm-hmm. today. Can you kind of highlights real what's in the budget that riders or community members might be interested to know about? Sure. Well, in addition to our normal service services that we provide, uh, the Norwood route, um, Lawson, off-season, the Rico, Down Valley, et cetera, we have a little room in the budget for some service expansions, not a lot. Um, and frankly, there's not a lot left for us to do on our five-year operating plan um, that we've just about fully implemented at this point. Um, so I think you, you, we might see some enhancements to the Norwood and Down Valley routes, potentially. Um, we have to kind of think through what we're doing there because we don't have a ton of resources to throw um, at those types of services, but could look for that kind of thing. 
um, definitely be on the lookout for another, another iteration of a five-year operating plan. Um, we have a grant into CDOT right now um, to help us fund that effort. Um, I'm feeling pretty positive about it. We've got some good feedback, but don't have an award yet or letter yet, so that's, that's, the, that's the goal. Um, but I hope that people pay attention to that process and, and even more important, plug into it um, because that's, this one's going to be really heavy on public input. Um, we want to get a lot of input from the public on where we go from here as far as service expansions and refinements and things like that and some kind of interesting policy questions that we have to kind of sort out as well. Obviously, folks who ride the bus will either, will always know um, what they're having to pay to get on the bus. Is there going to be any changes in fees or rates for any of the services that Smart has next year? I think that's one of the policy questions that we have to dive into. Um, there's been a lot of chatter in the business, the transit business, not just in this area, but in general about transit being free and what kind of impact that has on ridership as well as the community. Um, I think we owe it to ourselves to have that conversation. At the same time, it could go the other way. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's probably a case to be made that um, if we're not going to go free, that maybe we aren't charging enough for some of the services that, that we do do. And that really boils down to a policy conversation of the board of directors about how much they want to subsidize these services. What's, I'm sure there's something. So what would you say is in the budget that is maybe a little bit in the weeds. It's not necessarily the thing that people are going to just right off the bat notice or care about, but you think is really important that people should know and care about. Probably a couple things. Um, there's a line item in there to finish the design work for the Meadows Underpass project. I think that's a huge project. Um, not just because I cross the highway there every day either, um, but I hear from visitors, um, residents of Lawson Hill, um, other folks about how dangerous that crossing is of Highway 145. And we really want to get that design done so that we can hand off the plans to our partners in Mountain Village and they can try to get it built in 2024. So I think that one's huge. It's kind of under the radar, definitely down in the weeds. I mean, it's a design project, not super exciting, um, but I think that's a pretty key piece of infrastructure for bicyclists and pedestrians um, to safely get around the region a little bit better. Um, another one potentially would be a special project that we have brewing. I don't think it's super exciting for folks, um, but you know we, we bought those buildings out in Lawson Hill a couple years ago. We need to start planning to use them, and we're still two years out for moving into those spaces uh, as far as maintenance facility or maintenance functions go. At least two years, maybe more. Um, but we want to get our ducks in a row um, with some planning and design work about what that space might look like. Uh, have an understanding of costs as far as equipment that we'll need to purchase, like lifts and. Um, things like that to start thinking about making that a maintenance space someday. Um, so super down in the weeds, operations focused, not a shiny like ribbon type, ribbon cutting type project at all, but absolutely essential for a growing transit agency. So that's why we're going down that path. Um, so that's kind of a little bit of an overview about next year. Yep. But, you know, as, as the agency has kind of gotten feet under itself a mm -hmm. little bit more. Where do you um, hope or imagine SMART will be going in the next five, six, ten years? Well, personally, as an administrator, I, I want to see us just get on more solid footing as far as having our facilities in line and, and, a, and a maintenance function closer to home and things like that. I think the rest of that question, frankly, is going to be decided by this next five-year operating plan. That's where we're going to talk about, well, where do we go next? Where do we increase frequencies next? Do we start all new routes? Things like that. Um, I think that's going to be really key for us, as well as how that um, that future incorporates gondola 
the, the gondola and the conversation around the gondola, um, which is an active, hot conversation right now. <laughs> so um, we'll know a lot more about a year from, from now, maybe a year and a half from now, what the future looks like, but we're just trying to set the stage so that we can have that conversation and, and engage with the community so that they can tell us where they want us to go, because that's really what it boils down to. Well, we'll definitely be checking in in that about a year, year and a half from now, and yeah. many times in between as well. I hope. Um, but congratulations on passing the budget. That's a, a big lift Thank for you. any yeah. organization. And David, yeah, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Anytime. Thank you. One person's discarded item is another person's jackpot. This Saturday, the Telluride Marshals Department will host their semi-annual bike and unclaimed items silent auction. Head to the Telluride High School cafeteria from 9 to 11 a.m. on Saturday, December 10th to bid on the orphaned items and, who knows, maybe come home with your favorite new find. Limited parking is available at the school and the Marshals Department notes items cannot be returned at the auction. We may live in a small town, but that doesn't mean we can't get transported to the big city. This weekend, Palm Arts Dance will take the community on a trip to New York City with its Holiday in the Big Apple performance. Featuring over 90 local dancers aged 3 to 17, the vibrant tour of the city will take the audience through New York locations and showcase a range of styles you may see during the holidays in the city. From fairy tale ballet to tap to jazz, hip hop contemporary to integrative. The final stop will be at Lincoln Center, where the second half of the performance will be dedicated to a condensed version of the Sleeping Beauty Ballet. Holiday in the Big Apple will take place at the Palm Theater on Saturday, December 10th at 6 p.m. and Sunday, December 11th at 2 p.m. Tickets are available at telluridepalm.com. A beauty of Christmas is getting to bring the outside inside. A Christmas tree and wreaths help make the holiday season especially cozy. This weekend, the Wilkinson Public Library is helping everyone lean into that spirit of the season with a wreath-making class. Florist Ashley Hoagland will lead the class, teaching participants to build their very own wreath with a grapevine base, fresh evergreens, berries, pine cones, and ribbon. There will also be additional fun and seasonal ornaments to give your wreath some extra pizzazz. The wreath-making class will take place at the Wilkinson Public Library on Saturday, December 10th at 4 p.m. Registration is limited and available at telluridelibrary.org. A large group of migrants arrived in Denver by bus this week with no advance notice. Now the city is setting up an emergency shelter. As KOTO's Lucas Brady Woods reports, authorities say more migrants are on the way. About 120 migrants from Central and South America, including at least three children, are staying at the shelter. Up to 30 more migrants are arriving daily, and authorities are preparing for that to continue. Evan Dreyer, the mayor's chief of staff, says that's why they've opened an emergency operations center. It's a coordinating effort that brings all of our different city agencies and then partner organizations together to establish a plan, establish locations, so that we are able to take care of folks. Officials say the influx of migrants into Denver has been increasing recently. Dreyer says 300 arrived over the last two months. He also says there is no indication that their arrival was politically motivated or facilitated by any government entities. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods in Denver. 
Winter is certainly upon us, but there's a lot that has to happen before the snow really starts piling up. For the White River National Forest in Summit County, one important item to check off its to-do list is a logging project. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Aspen Public Radio's Caroline Yanis went out to see the project in October and learned a little bit about what kind of impacts these projects have. That's the sound of a tree falling in the White River National Forest. If you've driven up the frying pan towards Lyle Lake recently, you've probably noticed a big patch of land with no trees. It's pretty stark in contrast with the sprawling stands of lodgepole pines that make up much of the upper frying pan. It's very dramatic to look at, and not in a good way. Aspen Sopris District Ranger Kevin Warner acknowledges that it's a pretty in-your-face thing to see, and will be for quite some time. If I drive my kids up here on our next time going up to Lyle Lake, they're going to ask me, Dad, why the hell did they do that? Why did you do that? You know, because it looks looks different. The lodge poles that used to be there were over a century old. And Warner says that's not necessarily a good thing. The intent from the Forest Service really is to regenerate a younger forest in this 40 acres uh, that complements the surrounding forest around us. In order to be resilient to all kinds of situations, Warner says forests should be diverse, particularly in terms of age. By having a variety of ages in a forest, different trees will be more or less resilient to things that happen, like disease, invasive beetle infestations, and wildfires. For example, certain beetles could prefer older trees, but younger trees are more likely to burn hot in a wildfire. Having a mix of young and old trees allows the whole forest ecosystem to recover when one of these events occurs. The goal on this project is to clear-cut about 40 acres of lodgepole pine, and it requires relatively few personnel. For the felling stage, just one man in the cab of a machine called a feller buncher. When the lodgepoles are felled, the reseeding process begins almost immediately, according to Chris McDonald, a forester with the White River National Forest. After they drop the trees, there should be enough of the the cones that fall off and remain in place. And then the summer heat and sunshine will open the cones, releasing the seed. But it's a long process. It'll take about four years to see any real growth from saplings and decades for mature trees. This will look like a sea of Christmas trees in 10 to 30 years, basically. And then after that, they'll they'll take off and grow larger in the full-size trees. And then how, how many years does it take for a fully grown lodgepole pine? They're mature 80 to 120 years for, for lodgepole. Um, they're one of our shorter-lived trees. Um, aspen are much like that as well. Our spruce fir can go three to 500 years. And when you have a very old stand of lodgepole pines, they get really dense, as Warner points out. As you can see, there is very little sunlight getting to the floor of this forest because they're packed in really tight. That kind of density almost creates a desert in the understory, with very little sunlight getting through and very few species adapted to these conditions. By clearing out the older trees, Warner says it allows for younger trees, as well as different species, like aspens, to move in and create more diversity. And it benefits those understory residents as well. Snowshoe hare uh, rely on needles for their, uh, for their food source, and so what they really like to see is a varied height 
of trees, of smaller, younger trees, that they can still get to those, the needles at different heights of snow as the, as the winter progresses. You might ask, why not a prescribed burn? That's something the Forest Service has done here in our valley in the past, with benefits to forest health, including revegetation. But in this area of the forest, about 10,000 feet in elevation, there are challenges with prescribed burns. Warner says that prior to such a fire, they'd need to bring in a bulldozer, or a piece of equipment called a masticator, to create very strong fire lines to prevent the prescribed burn from spreading. And even then, you would have to be operating within some extremely tight weather windows that would allow for the fire to actually do the work that it needs to do in here and not then transport into the areas that we were not looking to treat. So it'd be a tough one. There's also the added benefit of what happens to the trees once they're felled. A piece of equipment called a skitter drags the trees over to a huge wood chipper and they're ground up into small pieces, probably about three to four inches a piece, a fairly fine grind. Semis come and pick up the wood chips and take them to the biomass plant in gypsum, where they're turned into steam power for Holy Cross energy. Power that comes from these wood chips counts towards Holy Cross's goal to get 100% of its electricity from renewable sources by 2030. Warner says one of the hardest parts of his job is conveying to the public all these benefits of this project, especially when in its beginning stages, it's not a pretty picture. But it's kind of like, you know, a remodel of your kitchen. You got to get a little messy to get that really nice product at the end. And so, you know, that's that's kind of the situation we're in right now. This is the messy phase. If all goes to plan, all wood products will be removed from the site in the next couple of weeks. And over the next century, instead of a kitchen, we'll have beautiful stands of lodgepole pines up the frying pan with trees of all different ages. For Aspen Public Radio News, I'm Caroline Yanez. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low around 10 degrees. Friday should be cloudy with a high near freezing. Friday night calls for mostly clear skies with a low around 10 degrees. Saturday, expect mostly sunny skies during the day and partly cloudy skies at night. The high is in the mid-30s with a low around 20. This has been the news for Thursday, December 8th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. listening to a little bit of our upcoming Winter Sing 2022. The concerts are Friday, December 9th at 7 o'clock and Sunday, December 11th at 4, both at the Acoustically Beautiful Christ Church. Our artistic director, Hal Adler, has prepared the adult chorale with wonderful music featuring holiday songs from around the world.
The pieces range from the shimmering and reflective Oculi Omnium to the big celebratory Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. And what's different this year and exciting is that we will have a few audience sing-alongs planned, especially the Handel's Hallelujah, where you'll have music in Hal's direction. The program also will include the audience holding candles while joining children and adults singing a few traditional carols. Our new youth director, Liz Forsyth, is excited to have the children's choir perform by themselves and also with the adult chorale. It's truly a collaborative community effort that the Telluride Choral Society is proud to present to you. And our Susan Ensor, pianist, will be accompanying us on several pieces. Once again, the Winter Sing performances will take place on Friday, December 9th at 7 and Sunday, December 11th at 4, both at Christ Church. Tickets are $20 for adults and $10 for students and children, and they're available at the door. The concert length is approximately an hour. Hope to see you there. This is Ginny Fraser with the Choral Society, and thank you, Kodo. For more information, contact Sandy McLaughlin, our board president, at 519-0081 and Susan V. Brock's site, Telluride Inside and Out. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Koto. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.